The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. In the last chapter, Harl remembers the game of Tagwar that he played in his youth and the one time he bested the unbeatable Nitrum got. Back in the present, the party is being pursued by an aggressive grizzly bear. They get very lucky with an evasion roll that allows them to find and scale a rocky outcropping. From here, the bear cannot reach them, and Eridine is able to drive off the creature by sending a half dozen arrows into its hide. But escaping the grizzly has its price. The party loses time, both in waiting it out and then circumventing the valley where it lived later on and time proves to be the greater enemy. Their food and, more importantly, water supplies run out, and once again, the party is in real danger of dying from their lack. They risk sacrilege by drinking the holy water that Umura took from the convent, but it's not enough. Before reaching the Arleguar, exhausted, they stop and cannot resume their journey. Before the chapter ends, we briefly follow the progress of Sav Maramon, who has reached his first goal, Dwervar. Following the enigmatic instructions of the old god of decay in Thkadra, he meets with Barak Ironskin, and the two share discourse, but whatever they discuss, it is not for our ears. Chapter 37, Part 1, Day 47 a late morning sun beat down over a brown and craggy bluff, surrounded by numerous other gray-brown and craggy bluffs. There was nothing green for miles in any direction, and nothing moved but the ever-shifting dust. Nothing made a sound except the wind, that is, until three squat shapes crested the rise, their boots scraping and scuffing over the rocks. Belthrun, Boonthran, and Bardane, all of them hornbeards, picked their way along a route as familiar to them as it would be to any other scouting party from Thangar. The trio were dressed in light leathers, with mail covering the vitals. They were sparsely equipped for a full day's ranging, with rope, harness, rations, and water skin in each of their little packs. Their beards blew into their faces with each howling gust of the west wind. They were at the outer edge of the patrol perimeter and were about to head home. As ever, there was little to report. No sign of giant or giant kin, Nothing at all. But such reports were, of course, the kind their chief liked best, and so all was well. At least, 
until Bunthren broke the silence to complain, as he often did. Remind me why I'm once again up here under the Gruenbog accursed sun, brother? Because you drew the short straw. No, Belthrin, you drew the short straw. That doesn't explain why we are up here with you. Ah, well, the answer to that is quite simple. Care to enlighten us? You are my brothers. I petitioned the chief for your companionship, and I was granted it as a boon for my faithful service. You asked for us. You did this to us? Peace, brothers. There are worse routes on surface reconnaissance than this one, and other even worser duties besides. Name three. Well... Uh, You stay out of this. Hypothetically, your assignment today might have been mucking out under mule stalls, following the unfortunate incident with the Brickhead Clan's forge. Uh, Was that going to be... That wasn't my fault. Or also, hypothetically... Bardane might have been sent to chain-diving in the depths, after the unpleasantness with Lady Bristlebrow's feast last week. But I hate chain-diving. So it is entirely, hypothetically, possible that my requesting your presence and spending my earned boon from the chief, that I saved you both from much worse fates. (laughs) Thank you, Belthrin. No need for thanks, brother. We are hornbeards, after all. And mother says we look out for each other. And father says watch your brother's back before a fish eater sticks a knife in it. Fish eater? When did you become so small-minded and old-fashioned? Why, just last week I heard you say... Shh! Quiet! What is it, brother? Do you see something? The eldest dwarf had his eyes to the sky and presently jabbed a stubby finger towards some distant clouds. Look up, vultures. But Bunthren, the youngest, was looking down instead of up. He was pointing at a rocky shelf some hundred yards below and directly under the vultures. The bird's shadows drew circles around the place like a spot on a map. Do you see that? Something glistening in the sunlight. Carefully, quietly, and now with their short blades drawn, the brothers moved toward something that gleamed on the rocks. There's a person there, a human. And a female, too. Oh, so ugly. Not just one. There's more. And two dwarves with them. Look at this. The dwarves reached the unmoving forms. As they approached, they threatened with their blades and called out. But none of the forms moved. They lowered their blades in unison. The people must have recently died. The thing that had glinted so brightly in the sunlight turned out to be a shield made of pure silver. There was a familiar image on its face. The image of a pickaxe. That shield insignia belongs to the stone carvers of Durvar. What is it doing all the way out here? And why strapped to the arm of a human? Outrageous! Just then, one of the figures, a tattooed woman, flicked her eyes open. If she was surprised by the dwarf's presence, she did not show it. In fact, she barely moved at all. Her lips, they saw, were cracked and white. All three dwarves jumped back in surprise, blades back up, but it was quickly apparent that there was no threat to be found here. Uh, not dead. Hmm. Looks like they came pretty close. Belthrin prodded the others indelicately with the tip of his boot, and one by one they came too. They were all alive, but clearly too weak to move or even speak. 
Let's take the dwarves and leave the others for the vultures. Look at this. There's an inscription on the shield. By the stones! We'd best get them all back to Thangar. Perhaps we ought to give them a drink, too. Ugh. I wish I'd gone to the Undermule stalls. Between the Lines, Thangar. The name Thangar comes from the Old Dwarvish for Bastion or Sanctuary. Built during the Age of Legends, Thangar began as a small fortress. It was here, during the war with the giant kin, that followers of Varen Elamor, the Master Armorer, once held a desperate but ultimately successful last stand. The attacking force of Trolls and Furbolg were driven off back into their lonely hills and their stinking swamps. After the defeat of Nera Numenax, the Crimson Queen, the place was expanded and, whether it was by virtue of dumb luck or, as the residents of Thangar largely believe, through divine grace, a rich vein of silver was discovered, and then another, and then yet more. Thus the mountain into which Thangar was built became known as the Arlegwar, dwarvish for the Silver Peak. This discovery, combined with the general peace won by defeating the Fire Lizard, resulted in a golden era for the people of Thangar, or rather call it a silver era, for as the gifts of the mountain were unearthed and smelted, Thangarians quickly found themselves both wealthy and powerful. Not much is known of Thangar's first chief. Varen Elamor, he who had forged the Shield of Winter, was an enigma even to those who might have called him friend, never comfortable with leadership, the quiet and retiring warrior allowed his former apprentice and later seneschal, Kamut Augerstone, to rule in his place. This was not common practice, but no one questioned the will of one of Merith's greatest champions. Besides, under Augerstone, Thangar grew and prospered with even greater momentum. Although both dwarves were master armorers, unlike Elamor, Augerstone's other talents were more mercantile than martial. He used his master's fame to draw leaders from other communities to Thangar, and then began building relationships through trade. Successful trade relationships begat comfort, comfort begat plenty, and plenty begat wealth. The fortress soon became a citadel. Next, a grand palace was built. Still, Thangar grew. Eventually, spun up with the threads of commerce, a town was woven, and it blanketed the mountainside around the citadel, like a patchwork quilt. At any given time, Thangar was home to over 1,500 souls, with over 1,000 of them being dwarves. Among them, humans could frequently be seen living and working. Some even took up permanent residence. These humans came from places as near as the kingdom of Sechoros at the northern edge of the Kazmirioth, and as far away as the Kothic Empire, miles and miles away across the sea. Other races made the occasional appearance too. Halflings were not infrequently to be seen, selling their pungent salves, questionable remedies, and strange liquors. Even the reclusive elves paid a visit to Thangar every few decades. Commerce brought more than physical wealth to Thangar. Attitudes in the citadel and in the town that existed around it, both hugging the mountainside and carved right into it, became more modern and cosmopolitan when compared to secluded, homogenous, and typically dour dwarven holds, such as Dwarvar. In Thangar, Dwarven maidens walked and shopped and socialized in public instead of being hidden away behind closed doors. Not all, 
but many dwarven bachelors dressed in fine clothing instead of armor here. Public works of art were also more adventuresome, although, even in Thangar, representations of the deity were not to be found. Shop signs, and other places where writing was on display, was often written in both dwarven runes and in the script of the common tongue. Above all, Thangar was busy. The promenades, twisting streets and alleyways, were never silent. The sounds of laughing children, haggling merchants, touts, and criers rang through the air from morning until nightfall, at which time the muffled strains of music poured from the two inns and three alehouses which served the numerous traveling vendors. The voices of the bards and their instruments would carry through the night air or reverberate through the tunnels well into the small hours. Knights of Roleplay, an adventuring podcast, is an actual play, 5th edition, Dungeons & Dragons podcast. We offer a variety of content, including our actual play adventure episodes from our current campaign, as well as a rules primer and special episodes like one-shots and advice for players and dungeon masters. Whether you are a new player or a seasoned veteran, Knights of Roleplay offers something for anyone interested in Dungeons & Dragons. Please join us for our Spacefarers campaign, which is a mix of fantasy and science fiction. We hope our unique brand of humor and storytelling will provide you with hours of nerdy entertainment. Please visit us at knightsofroleplay.com. Whatever has become of our player characters... My apologies for keeping you waiting, but let me assure you, they are quite alive, and they are finally safe. Following their discovery and subsequent rescue by the three Hornbeard brothers, they were taken first to a guard tower outside the citadel walls. Here, they were revived and, well, not much else. The watchtower dwarves tried to question them, but the PCs were barely coherent. Gyrios's shield became a topic of great interest and discussion among them. They decided the best move would be to keep them overnight and send them onward to the Citadel on the morrow. By day 48, the PCs were lucid and able to walk. After a small breakfast, they were escorted to the Citadel. They arrived at a busy barracks where they were interrogated thoroughly by a pair of captains and then made to wait while a runner was sent to the chief himself. By this time, Harl was growing restless. He tried to speed things up by identifying himself and Ursuleth as Clenneth Stonecarver's kin. But his efforts were wasted, and the process continued slowly and deliberately despite them. Finally, a pair of guards arrived. They were dressed in immaculate, silver-trimmed, full lobstered plate mail. One of them tapped the butt of his battle axe on the ground and addressed them in a voice that rang, bell-like, inside his fully visored helm. The five of you will come with us now. This time, the party were taken to the palace. After being led through an open-air courtyard, they were conducted down a series of high-ceilinged corridors and into a bright antechamber. Here, they were given some supplies, with which they were expected to wash and otherwise ready themselves for an audience with the chief. At no time did their silent escort leave them to their privacy. After an hour, a pair of rosy-cheeked serving maids came up to gather their supplies and inquire as to whether they needed anything else. When they said that they did not, the maidens bowed deeply at the waist and backed out the way they had come, taking their buckets, washcloths, and soapy water with them. 
One of the two guards, it was impossible to know which since their great helms completely obscured their faces, addressed them again with his ringing baritone. Honored guests of Chief Baynon Augustone, seventh of his name, I respectfully remind you that although you are most welcome in Thangar, you are being watched at all times. Come. Chapter 37, Part 2, Day 48, Party Status, Harl, 21 of 21 hit points, Eridine, 12 of 12, Girios, 27 of 27, Umura, 18 of 18, Ursuleth, 4 of 4. Spells available, Umura has memorized, Light, Shield, Levitate, and Knock. Gyrios has prayed for, cure light wounds, purify food and water, and hold person. Chief Boehner Augerstone wore his snowy white whiskers shorter than most. They were divided neatly into four thick locks, each tipped with a silver thimble of sorts. His mustache was likewise bound in stiff silver wire. Apart from his beard and eyebrows, also stark white and somehow sticking straight up, Boehner was hairless. His skin was a shiny pink, and his nose and ears were exceptionally large, even by dwarven standards. Upon seeing the party enter, he immediately hopped down from his scroll-strewn desk and picked up a decorative wooden cane, which he used to help navigate the length of the room. His slippered feet on the carpet made little sound as he approached. Before the party had even fully entered his salon, he was talking, waving away Harl and Ursuleth's attempts at formality. Boehner's voice was somehow warm and gravelly at the same time. Oh no, there's no need for that kind of thing. Come in, come in. Yes, you three as well, he rumbled pleasantly. The chief lifted his wooden cane and used the end to point at Umura, Gyrios, and Eridine, who were standing well back of Harl and Ursuleth. Eridine noticed that the head of the cane was carved into the likeness of a bear. She frowned. Come in, come in. All goodly folk are welcome, Thangar. Boehner's eyes immediately went to Gyrios' shield when the cleric stepped up with the others to properly meet the chief. Oh my, my. Where did you get a shield like that? The old chief squinted a little. I'll warrant the silver was mined right here. Right? beneath your very feet. Harl explained for the cleric. Glenneth made a gift of it to Gyrios here, for his service to the dwarves. She even had it inscribed for him. Was that so? Well, come closer, my boy. I don't think I should be able to read that from over here. Gyrios approached and offered the inside of his shining shield for the chief's inspection. Boehner mumbled a little to himself as he read. <sighs> Servant of the sun, dwarf friend. Well... He looked impressed, though perhaps not as surprised as Gyrios might have expected. It warms my old heart to meet you all. But there is one amongst you that I am most eager to meet. Step forward, young stone carver. Ursuleth did so, a little hesitantly. She had a wary look in her eyes, as though she doubted what she saw. This was, in fact, the case. After all she had been through, some part of her consciousness would not allow her to feel safe. 
I believe that you have been through much. So very much, my dear. Come here. Hmm? He opened his arms wide and waited patiently while Ursulith slowly found the strength to trust. She stepped toward him over the carpet and embraced the elder dwarf stiffly. Boehner patted her back. Something visibly released in her, and quickly she was sobbing into his chest. Oh, there, there. It is over now. I have heard of your troubles, young lady. At these words, Boehner looked up at Harl and the others with keen eyes. Yes, I have heard this terrible tale. Ursuleth continued to weep, and a look of pure sadness came over the chief's face. I will hear more of it tonight. Hmm? Again, the eyes were clearer and looked at the party with meaning. But until then, you must rest. I will have a private room prepared forthwith. The chief then drew himself up so that his back was straight and his manner became somewhat formal. As for the rest of you, as I say, despite these ill tidings, you are most welcome in Thangar. We will speak at length later on. Until then, avail yourself of any services in the Citadel. Explore, rest, refresh yourselves, as you will. My man Holdner will see to your needs. Until tonight, then. This time, Harl did bow low at the waist, as did his companions, while Chief Boehner led a weeping Ursuleth away toward an arched opening in the room's far corner. As they went, he let her lean against him and spoke soothing words in her ear. Just once, Ursuleth looked back at them. Her eyes were red-rimmed. Her mouth was a little straight line. Harl bit his lip and watched her go. After departing the royal chambers, the companions are escorted to the main street by the chief's seneschal, Holgna Ringlock. Holgna is a portly dwarf of middle age. His head is topped with a widow's peak, and a fortune's worth of silver rings, clasps, and beads adorns his gray-streaked beard, which curls up at the front and tapers to a point. Despite his appearance, he moves and speaks rather quickly, fluttering his hands as he talks, which causes his beard jewelry to jingle. Holgna provides him directions and answers various questions about the citadel. In truth, it is almost like a city, before returning to his duties inside. One place I always recommend is the Dead Troll. It's a little tavern down yon alleyway. The Troll has the best beer in Thangar, bar none, and it's popular with dwarves and resident human folk alike. If you'd treat your tongues, order the goat. Oh. And you'd best go early if you'd hope to get a table, as it fills up quickly around supper time, no matter the day. You'll be expected back at the palace to speak with Lord Augustone after you sup. The party decides to split up, take care of a few things, and meet up at the recommended tavern later on. Eridine and Umura first went down a side street named Arligriff, Silver Alley. If you were a silversmith in Thangar, this is where you ran your business. While they were there, they settled on a trader and sold the silver candelabra that they'd been carrying for over a month. They sold a quality silver chain, too. Of the several people they spoke to, not one silversmith had failed to notice, and to make a generous offer on, Umura's necklace. But of course, it had been a gift from Kleneth Stonecarver, and she was not willing to part with it. 
Although it was gratifying to deny the jewelers this prize, Umura could not help but leave feeling disappointed. Her attempts to communicate in Dwarvish had not impressed any of the vendors. In fact, they had barely seemed to notice when she slipped into their native tongue. Eridine had been impressed, but she kept that to herself. Eventually, the two women left Arlegriff with an extra 90 gold pieces to add to their purse, giving them a little over 100 GP in mixed coins. Next, they found an alleyway that led into the mountain and down a corridor lined with small tailor's booths and textile vendors. They each purchased new clothes, opting for simple, sturdy garb that favored function over form. Leggings, tunics, traveling cloaks, and good boots. They negotiated a price for all of it that came to 20 gold pieces. Following this, Eridine topped up her supply of arrows. She bought 20, along with a boiled leather quiver for five gold pieces. Their final stop was at a store they might have easily missed. It was small and out of the way, deep within the mountainside. The signage was faded and the place looked neglected. An elderly human woman sat at the desk within. Without looking up from the book she was reading, she mumbled a greeting to Lior's Lost Books and Curiosities. It was hard to tell whether the name was descriptive or prescriptive as there seemed to be no order to anything at all. There were books on shelves, in piles, in wooden trunks, and just about everywhere. Umura didn't see anything in the way of curiosities, so she smugly decided that it must refer to the surprising fact of the establishment not having gone out of business yet. After prying the proprietor's attention from her book, Umura negotiated the exchange of her old books, both the one on the goblin tongue and the other concerning alchemy, for a single volume entitled A Treatise on Theoretical Extraplanar Realities. They stayed far too long for Eridine's liking, and the girl was bored senseless by the time Umura concluded her business. Unfortunately for her, just as they were about to leave, a customer who had noticed the sorceress's tattoos and her taste in books struck up a conversation with her. I'm going to make a quick reaction roll here, because this exchange has the potential to mean something to the story. Oh my, that's an interesting choice. Might I ask you by chance from Zaysha? Why yes I am. You are? Mm -hmm. Oh, from which great house do you hail? Well, I'm, I'm from Anuxan. Anuxan? Oh my, well that is fascinating. You will have to to Eridine's irritation, the errand that might have taken them a half-hour stretched tediously, close to the two-hour mark. And when they finally left, the young rogue could not hide her annoyance. Umura was oblivious to it. She was delighted to have met someone and hit it off so well. In fact, she had invited the other woman, one Imawan Essek, the ambassador from faraway Koth, to meet and dine with them at the Dead Troll in an hour's time. As they walked on, the sorceress could not suppress a private little smile. Imawan Essek, as it happened, was also a sorceress. She had told Umura three very interesting things. One, she always trusted her instincts when it came to people. Two, she was seeking a gifted apprentice. Three, she saw something special in Umura. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider lending your support. There are lots of ways to help. You can recommend the show on forums or retweet episode release announcements. Leave a rating or review on your preferred podcatcher or simply tell a friend. My gratitude to anyone who has done any of these things to help me out. 
My thanks also to those whose voices turn the story into something more than just words on a screen. And boy, there are a lot of them in this episode. The Hornbeard brothers are voiced by the team over at TumbleDye Games. Andy, Kevin, and Kylan, playing Belthrin, Buntherin, and Bardane, respectively. Playing both the roles of Holgner Ringlock and Helmeted Palace Guard, I'd like to welcome to the cast Chris Hussey from The Adventures of Young and Holt and Gun for Hire Deadlands Actual Play Podcasts. Chief Boehner Augerstone is played by the unbelievably talented Trevor Duvall of the Me, Myself, and I YouTube series, which I can honestly say has become my favorite thing on YouTube since I discovered it. And last but not least, Louisa, playing Imawan Essek, the ambassador from Koth. I'm so pleased to have you in the show, Louisa. Thank you very much. A special mention and special thanks are due in this episode to Fabian Marmot, who generously provided the authentic medieval music. You can find more of Fabian's songs at medieval.fantasy.music on Instagram. I would encourage everyone to give him a follow. I'll post more links on the blog, too. This episode contains another Tale of the Manticore first. The scene featuring the three Hornbeard brothers was guest-written. Last February, I asked the Tumbledye team if they would be willing to take over Tale of the Manticore for the span of a few minutes. Well, I was a little nervous to hand off my baby, but I also like to take creative risks now and then, and boy, did it pay off. Kylan even scored the music that accompanies the scene. Thank you guys for doing such a great job. As with Fabian's music, I'll post some links on the blog for Kylan's. For show notes, maps, and for this episode, an updated set of character sheets complete with ability scores, as well as other thoughts, drawings, etc., etc., please visit taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. If you use social media, find me on Instagram, at Tale of the Manticore Podcast, and on Twitter, using the handle, at Manticore Tale. I can be reached by email, too, at taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. The adventure continues on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. Are you a D&D player looking for some character creation inspiration? Or a DM in desperate search of ideas for great NPCs? Are you a woman or non-binary person of any sexuality, race, and everything in between who wants to hear or share their stories from the game table? Then you will want to check out the Roll for Equality podcast. We're an LGBTQ plus and non-binary led show that uses history for character inspiration by telling stories about badass historical people and how to make them into a PC or NPC for your campaigns with class, race, and background suggestions. We also do interviews and discussions about our experiences as women at the game table, social issues, and advice to help give a platform to women and non-binary players of every variety. We even do a few actual play campaign episodes. There are plenty of laughs, drinks, hijinks, and more here at Roll for Equality, and we would love for you, however you identify, to come and join in the fun and camaraderie as we talk about our favorite hobby, the Roll for Equality podcast. Give us a listen on major podcast platforms and happy adventuring.